0: Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, a series in which we take a deep dive into the Dungeon Master's Guides written for the previous editions of our favorite game. We aim to discuss what worked, what didn't work, what got pulled into future editions, and what got left by the side of the road. And on the fourth day of Edition Wars, my true love gave to me four giant white rocks flying across the sky at midnight. Oh, well, maybe that wouldn't be such a good thing. Anyway, what is this evening bringing for you my co-host.
1: Well, this evening so we're starting in on chapter 7 in the second edition DMG which is magic and it is very Ars Magica up in this piece and <laughs> so so you know him all about it.
0: <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, what do you have to say about it? It sucks. All right, okay, we're moving on. <laughs> really? <laughs> Come on now. I, I knew you would agree. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> no. So what? What about it? What? What are we talking about here? What's your favorite part?
1: Well, so this is this opens with a lot of discussion of um, how you get your spells. Like, if you're, it, I don't know why they're only talking about wizards. Like, mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. I don't know why cleric spells aren't magic but they're not. They're just not.
0: Well, we already know how they get their spells. so.
1: Sure. I mean, ish. Um, anyway. I mean,
0: I'm being facetious. I'm, I'm <laughs> saying they definitely should be talking about divine magics as well, but yeah. you know, it's kind of
1: poo-pooed. Well, and, have have and I weird. talked before about wanting to, Run a campaign sometime where clerics have to do just as much legwork to get new spells as wizards do. So you go track down holy relics mm-hmm. of your faith to like, attune to them to get new spells. Not yeah. attune in the magic item sense, just right. Right. Y- mm-hmm. y- y- you study it for a while and pray over right. it and you get a new spell. Because that'd be so yeah. much fun.
0: Anyway. Yeah, it would. And I mean, look, you know, when, when, when the ancients sacrificed to the gods, they didn't just slaughter a goat and burn it with no ceremony. I mean, it was... Sure. It was all done up. You didn't just, and you didn't just know how to do it. You had to be trained. That's right. So yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. Well, and well, as it a person also, who loves playing divine casters, that yeah. is right up my alley, as you know, yeah. from our discussion about, you know, the, the residuum and all that, and how it would be different for divine magics and, and all that. So I'm, that's right up my alley. Yeah. So yeah, it kind of irks me that they don't talk about that.
1: Well, well, like yeah. pilgrimages will suddenly be built in. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Like, There's a shrine of, I don't know, um, there's a shrine in Compostela. You need to go to it. Compostela? I'm in (laughs) Scotland. I can't get a Compostela from here. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. (laughs) um, So uh, there are a couple of different ways you can get your new spells. You choose, GM GM chooses, you work together. I cannot Mm -hmm. believe how many paragraphs they spend on this. Right, man right. and but that's that's me coming from, you know, at this point, in most of my gaming career having been spent on third, fourth, and fifth editions, where mm-hmm. the idea of you don't get to pick your starting spells is just what? No, right. well, no, remember this your is your playstyle, my guy.
0: Yeah, but th- this is also coming from the, you know, in first edition, it wasn't just that you didn't get to pick your spells. Sometimes you would you would find one and you would roll poorly and you would have no chance to learn it.
1: Yeah. Well, right? so it's and, it's
0: it's a very restrictive. So this is at least a little bit less restrictive.
1: Yeah. Well, and It's at uh, least
0: entertaining the idea, right?
1: This also has the issue of like you could wind up with no starting attack spells. You could wind up with no spells mm-hmm. are your specialty school,
0: right? Right. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm just um, so I'm just saying. Right. Like yeah, that's no, why I, they spend so many paragraphs on it because it's kind of new. I mean, yeah. Look, I'm not saying people didn't play first edition and just let their wizards pick spells. Right. I'm not saying it. You won't break the game
1: is, by letting people just have the fun they want to have. I promise.
0: Right. Like, but by the book, you know. So.
1: <laughs> but this is also where we see. um, Players gaining new spells immediately upon going up levels. First, whenever mm-hmm. a, a character attains a new spell level, allow the player one new spell immediately. And mm-hmm. like that, I, I believe that's a big change from first. Mm-hmm. I'm not looking at the book right now, but I'm pretty sure it's a change. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, some kind of guarantee that you can use your highest level slot is a big deal. Um, I'm never sure how I feel about this. Because any number of guaranteed spells, uh, especially if you're picking from you know, the open list of whatever's allowed in the campaign, mm-hmm. uh, really, really erodes any need to go chase down new spells. But it's fine. It's fine. Um, you don't have to roll to learn your new spell, at level up, so that's fine. You can also copy from spell books as god and vance and everyone else intended um (laughs) then there's scroll research which is very cool you know uh you definitely might destroy your scroll and not get the spell so Mm. fun um and it still takes a bunch of time and money so like it's it's super punitive but i guess the payoff of all that uh punitive setup is man, when it works, it feels great. Um, Right. Notably in um, Planescape Torment, which is one of, one of the short list of uh, second edition uh, computer RPGs I've actually played to any great extent. (laughs) uh, They get rid of um, any chance of failure in picking up a new spell because it's not the fun they want to have. Right. Um, right. Then finally, there's study with a mentor. Um, and I mean, having an ongoing uh, apprenticeship relationship is great. Um, I haven't actually played a game where the wizard PCs' you know, previous master was important in the campaign in an ongoing way, and I should mm-hmm. fix that. It's really cool, actually.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it's tough, though, because um, it's easy to accidentally make that person overshadow any of the things that the PC does. I mean, um, maybe. Or, or just become a generic kind of patron-type person, type in PC where, oh, okay, I'm just giving you your next task. Like, there's uh, sure. a way to add it in very richly that right. could be awesome. But I think it's going to require a lot of effort.
1: I, so so I agree that there are pitfalls. Um, I guess I feel confident enough in my ability to avoid the pitfalls that oh, sure. not, uh, I'm not too worried about it. I mean, it, in the same way that in D and D brief, you have you know more senior priests of um, uh, the of your cleric's god show mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. and it's okay. Sure. Oh, right. yeah. They don't overrun the campaign. It's
0: fine. Right, right. Um, right.
1: Anyway, um, the next section is entitled DM Control the Spell Acquisition, which, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it says most of right. what you need to hear about right. uh, how tight fisted uh, or not to be. It, because mm-hmm. it, the, the section is not just, hey, be tight fisted. It's think about what you want here.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, right. Yeah. And. You know, by keeping the selection of spells limited, you automatically increase their importance and value to the wizards in your campaign. Um, and you know, it's it's interesting that that plural phrasing, that uh, sort of sidelong implication of more than one wizard there's, in the party. It's gonna be more
0: than yeah, <laughs> exactly. Which yeah.
1: I mean, you mostly don't see. Um, mm-hmm. certainly not in. Uh, third or fourth or fifth. Not not at all. And, I mean, it does happen in my game because there are so many characters right? that, like, sometimes there will be two or three wizards in a single-party roster, mm-hmm. um, just sort of by chance. But uh, mostly it doesn't happen because mostly everyone's playing a different class. And honestly, that was mostly true in Second Ed. Um,
0: sure. But... Um, Again, other than hit. sort of specific campaigns that were set up, you know, yep. to do things like Wizards of the Accordlands and stuff like that. Um, but also in 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 later editions where people have broader access to magic, for example, 5th edition, as you know, my d d brief game, like every single one of the players can cast.
1: Yep.
0: And... And cast well, I mean, they can, they have lots of ability to use magic, even though they're not all wizards. In fact, none of them are wizards. Right. Um, So that becomes a little, that that idea becomes a little more dilute later on. But certainly in first and second edition, um, you know, I I don't remember running, ever running a game where I had more than one wizard.
1: Um, Yeah, fair. I mean, things do get really interesting in a hurry
0: mm-hmm.
1: if you have two characters of the same class and they need to differentiate themselves from each other, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Um, and there's sort of even more room for that to happen with wizards than with other classes because their spell choices represent such differentiation. Right, right. Um, I mean, any spellcaster could, right? Uh, certainly in later editions, two, two sorcerers in 5th edition might have zero things in common. Sure. Other than, you know, the very few core sorcerer features, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. their, their subclasses are so different. Their spell lists are so different Mm -hmm. and so on. But, um, anyway, I I do really like just what this represents here. Um, in terms of differentiation, in terms of a goal, just that, that sort of got to catch them all impulse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, that's all very very fun to me, um, and then we get uh, a, literally books. a full page on spellbooks. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they have stuff to say about spellbooks, um, all shapes and sizes. Um, that's that's very you know promising, <laughs> I guess. Um, uh-huh. And because it's the second yeah. edition DMG, uh, we get the historical real world fantasy. Like iteration mm-hmm. on it, right? Um, with uh, Egypt and ancient China and mm-hmm. Babylon and mm-hmm. and medieval Europe, and like right. that's still fascinating mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. that's where uh, Zeb Cook was coming from as he thought about all this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean what it's really saying is you can deliver a lot of great characterization just by describing your spell book, go forth and prosper. Right. Uh,
0: yeah. Which I like because I, I like the idea of, you know, differentiating your character through the items that they have. Right. Yeah. Cause in some, in some cases that is the best way to differentiate your character. Yep. Um, even two fighters can have, you know, can look very different and, use very different equipment and therefore seem to have very different abilities, you know. I mean that that's absolutely valid and there's no reason that why it wouldn't be valid between two wizards or yep. you know two spellcasters.
1: Um and then there's a discussion of sort of um your your main grimoire at home and your traveling spellbook.
0: Mhm. Mhm. Uh, right.
1: And it was uh, sort of a a moment of in self-indulgent pride for me in um, in our Dusted Us LARP that I ran with uh, Rabbit and um, my friend Colin and mm-hmm. Jeremiah and a bunch of other friends. Right, um, I'm not going to list the entire staff here. Sorry, Dusted Us staff, you deserve it. But <laughs> I'm on a schedule. Um, that the players in the campaign uh, had both their like emergency traveling spell books and their their master spell books back at home they wouldn't risk for anything that sucker was under lock and key mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: because if they lost the spell like sorry bro that, that's gone Yep. you can research it again have fun with that <laughs> maybe you yeah. can, you can pay another cabal in the town to <laughs> sell you another copy that's gonna hurt
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i
1: don't know uh that was like we put a lot of energy into getting the the experience for wizards in that game that i see in these pages these imprinted on me enormously Mm -hmm. and um these even more than um the first the first set player's handbook and dmg represent to me a sort of sane game version a playable game version of uh what jack vance is talking about mm-hmm. in in stories about pendulum and turgeon of Mir and so on right? right um and so yeah I, I i said at the beginning of talking about this book in the previous episode that i wasn't going to be objective about it and <laughs> i'm not mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just just hint not objective
0: um yeah it's funny because whereas um this was very format you know f- formative in your sort of ideals about magic use and whatnot along with the the literature that you read but i mean in terms of the game for me first edition was yeah so for me i sort of it, it's interesting i have kind of a different relationship with this book because um and I don't mean that as a comparison, like the other one's better and this one's not as good or something like that, but just more in terms of, you know, I read this and I'm like, yeah, you know, these are the things we already had to sort of figure out and work through within our own group playing first edition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there was something, there was something of a, or somewhat of a, um, of a, almost like a, um, a validation of, oh yeah. You know, we've been doing it like this, but using first edition rules, but doing it like this as a house rule forever, you know, or for you know the last five campaigns or whatever. Yeah. Um and so there was a little bit of validation, but it wasn't as it didn't feel as formative. Right. It it just felt more validating of, oh yeah, so now not only are you saying that rules are a guideline and feel free to change things and make it work for your table, but you're actually showing that because this book is so different from the first edition dmg right i mean just yeah. in tone and in writing oh in what's for sure in it, everything right oh my gosh um, yeah yeah but like but it's still because it matches somewhat the main trope ideas of what D is obviously because it's D. then it still has some one-to-one comparison ability and it's like oh yeah 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 but it just wasn't as formative for me. So it's, it's interesting the different points of view that we come at this as. So,
1: I mean, uh, while I was out partying, you studied the blade, right, <laughs> of, of First Edition DMG. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> obviously for you, this is only going to be pruning your ideas at absolute most right. of what all of this should be. Like, True. yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I, I mean – I, as I have said so many times, I must have read this chapter a hundred times, just sort of mm-hmm. really just sort of feeling like the ideas, the images, and a very impressionistic sense of what it would mean at the table sort of flow through me as I read it. And a lot of it, I've never quite hit the note exactly the way I'd want over the course of a whole campaign to, Mm. to give the players a sense of like how cool it could be, how much it can feel like accomplishment. Um, and if anything, the problem is that, uh, there isn't comparable cool stuff for everybody. Um, right. There's cool stuff. Like your fighter gets a new weapon. It's great. He's happy for a week. Great. Um, but, I don't know. I'm, I'm just so attached to this.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's understandable, right? <laughs>
1: uh, but then, like, it, it just keeps going with um, adding new spells. And I mean, mm. I, I don't know if everyone who's ever played a wizard has immediately said to themselves, I'd like to research new spells. But I, I have certainly never encountered anyone who doesn't say – who doesn't look at, I can research new spells, question mark, exclamation point, mm-hmm. and they're off mm-hmm. to the races with right. ideas for things they think would be cool. Um,
0: I mean, I uh... – Yeah, and you know what's funny is I think in 1st and 2nd edition and in basic D&D, that happened a lot. But it feels like, to me, although I didn't play as much 3rd edition, but in 4th and 5th edition, that doesn't happen.
1: Uh, yeah, Fair. I mean...
0: You know, it, there, it, There's so many spells that are available, and there's so many ways to get getting products right. that have new spells for classes in them. Right. That, you I you know what know. I mean.
1: Oh, I absolutely Unless- do. Like I, I, just, uh, sort of internally default to, okay. When you're, well, that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about though, with like learning new spells when you level up. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, like if you treat, I get two new spells when I level up as a shopping trip through all the rule books. Well, that's, that's that's fun for a moment but it's also kind of missing some some sense of payoff to me um,
0: maybe but if you're in the middle of a campaign you don't have two months to go off and have the wizard research new things you know what I'm saying
1: well okay so there's a whole separate conversation around like, Building in downtime in the campaign, so that she sure, can pursue off-screen goals.
0: Sure, but but let's look. I mean, but if you look at modern adventures, they don't often build that time in. Yeah. So I therefore, know. you get a default playstyle or a suggested playstyle that doesn't really address this particular issue. It just no, assumes I, I they're agree. not going
1: to. I don't have to be happy so, about it, but I mean you're yeah. right. No, I mean,
0: and I'm not I'm not advocating for it. What I'm saying is it's almost like uh first and second edition are kind of the last time that we really see it advocated for.
1: Yeah. Well, it's the the last time that getting a castle is an assumed part of play for the fighter. <laughs> that's true. So that's true. Mm-hmm. Like while the while the wizard is gathering up all these spells, the the fighter is gathering up provinces.
0: Right. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I know you're right. It, it is, it is very, it's very different anyway. So we're going to go off on way too many tangents if we keep Weird. that line of discussion um, up.
1: But but yeah, like there are, there are guidelines for, uh, building new spells. They're, they're kind of what you think they are. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, this sets minimum research time for new spells at two weeks. Um, you all recall beloved listeners from this time last year when we were covering spells and magic. Okay. It was a couple of days later in the the 12 days, but work with me here. Um, I'm recording in November. It's the same, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, in, in spells and magic, uh, they go into way more depth and percentile roles and everything around spell research. Mm-hmm. But, this is sort of doing all of the same stuff with a lot more DM fiat and uh, that that sort of sense of things. Um, I really, really wish that I could go back to talk to you know Zeb Cook in eighty seven or eighty eight or whenever he must have started writing this, and just tell him about the game tech of advancement clocks (laughs) that PBTA games and um, Forge in the Dark games really, really hammered into sort of the whole gaming imagination. They Mm -hmm. aren't a weird idea. They're, They're a perfectly obvious idea that can just be implemented really well. And so I think it would have been the easiest thing in the world to explain and they're great for handling downtime actions. So awesome
0: <laughs>
1: is, is where I am with it. Right. 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 Uh, uh, just any kind of like bar that fills up and there's a state change at some point along that way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, anyway, um, there's, there's, even a bit about researching extra wizard spells. Um, this is dealing with the fact that your intelligence score dictates how many spells of each spell level you can know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and this is you know pushing past that limit for research, which is pretty cool, since it's a dumb limit anyway.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you, there's still this sort of also this this holdover assumed. Um, element of in from first edition where you might not be able to learn a particular spell, right? And even calls it out here in the researching extra spells. It talks about a a PC that failed to learn the fireball spell.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely a thing.
0: Yeah. That idea is still very prevalent in. And so the funny thing is that that, that would, tend to lead people to want to research new spells because they failed to learn the one that they thought was going to be really cool. So now they're going to try something totally different, which is actually kind of a good collateral effect of the kind of dumb rule that says you failed to learn it. Right. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's kind of sucks to put, put everything down to one dice roll. Right.
1: Yep. Yep. Um, I definitely, I definitely agree that, well, I can't kill this guy the obvious way. I have to. Well, I can't go fight my enemies the obvious way. You don't do it for one fight. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Right. That would be a, a really nice knock on effect to an otherwise sort of not super fun rule.
0: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, so, that, that gets us through quite a short chapter to chapter eight right. experience.
0: Yes, experience. <laughs>
1: well, I mean, this is this is one of the clunkier chapters in the book to me. And I mean, we covered all of this. Uh, we covered every word of this chapter really early on in the show.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, um, we did. We had a whole, we had a, uh, what was it? Two, two episode series on experience through the different editions.
1: Hey, Sam, you remember we covered more than one, uh, edition in an episode?
0: I know. Stop. This was your idea.
1: <laughs> yeah. accurate.
0: <laughs> um, but yes, no, I, I, and we can still, we're, we'll still do that. But uh, yeah, we, we already touched on this a great deal. I mean, I, honestly, what is there to even say about this? Um, you know, I, I think the, the one of the things uh, to say is that I think experience points are looked at by newer players, newer, newer D&D players, very differently from players in first and second edition. Okay. Um I mean fifth edition players half of them have only ever used Milestone. Mm, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep, 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 right? yep, They they don't even have an experience of the game. Uh, and and I mean this is a neutral statement. I don't mean it's good bad. I'm not I'm not, you know, going, "Huh, how how could they?" I'm just saying, you know, that um milestone experience milestone leveling is really popular and it works really well with fifth edition and it's the most popular edition and it's the current edition. So it's a thing. And, you know, it's kind of funny that, that, that this chapter starts out with the importance of experience because, you know, this was an edition where you, the PCs still leveled at different numbers, right? Different experience point values. Yep. And so if you if a if a if a player was acting up or was doing a really great role playing scene and you awarded them a hundred extra experience for that great speech they just gave in character, that was a big deal, especially yep. at low levels. Oh, for sure. And it made a difference. Now, when you're tenth level, hundred experience is not making that much difference, but you get the idea. Uh, uh, no, by I guess then, you scale it's,
1: a million or whatever XP that you need.
0: R- right, yeah. right. But it, but it's but but because you would have already supported the culture of the game as hey, that was a great scene. I'm awarding you experience for it. Yeah. Like that's an expected reward, whether it seems like it's a drop in the bucket or not. And yep. so this chapter has a lot of importance to the way that the game plays.
1: Yeah, I um, agree with that.
0: Yeah, and I like that they call out fun as a major factor,
1: right? Absolutely.
0: Constant goals are fun, character survival, and improvement. And I think that statement right there, this little half a page section, actually goes a long way to trying to set the tone in a less adversarial direction than yep. first edition is built on.
1: Yeah, the the f- uh, item four under fun... Uh, mm-hmm. Is really, really undermines the, the adversarial stance of mm-hmm. uh, first edition. Um, it doesn't do away with it, but it does undermine it. Uh, was the player argumentative or a rules lawyer? Um, this is definitely not fun for the DM, but the DM should allow a reasonable amount of disagreement with his decisions. Players mm-hmm. will want to argue their views from time to time. However, rules or arguments probably belong outside the actual game session. The DM should make a ruling for the moment and then hear appeals to his decision after the adventure. This way, the game is not interrupted. Well, right. that's a lot less "my way or the highway" than than Gary would have written it, right?
0: And right. And this is also advice that I have given in the last, you know, past several months.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, right? It's good advice. Um, it's
0: perennial, evergreen advice. That that little paragraph right there, yep. especially that last sentence. I mean, or the the last two sentences. Yep. That is great advice, and it's still accurate and usable today. Yep. But yes, it's very. It's not. It's not argumentative. It's not adversarial. It's. It's I, very.
1: I guess I have only one major e- extension I would make to this, you know, four-item list, which is just. Mm-hmm. Understand who the player is and what they're able to give. Like, mm-hmm. if you have a, a shy player, don't come down on them for it and fail to reward them. They're probably doing the best they can. Like, mm-hmm. understand how they're able to engage, and
0: yeah. Well, to be fair, it actually it says if a person is naturally shy, don't penalize them.
1: Oh, well, that's that's good. That's right. Good. Yeah, there, there it is. It actually, uh, item one, very that. good.
0: Yeah. Um but but I get what you're saying. And and the thing is like I feel like the um you know that the idea here a player who does nothing but tell one funny joke during the course of the game isn't really participating. I agree with that statement, but you know, if you're if you're having if you you know, look, we we live in the time of COVID and Trump, okay? So if you're just having a crap day, but you still wanted to come hang out and just be around people and have a good time, or you wanted to log in and be around people and have a good time because we can't see each other uh, in person. That's right. um, okay. Right. Like, so the, the, what I would say is you could actually add another sentence to that same top number there, that, that same top uh, item and just say, you know, also keep in mind that personal circumstances can cause a player to not be as participatory in an individual session. Yep. Don't and, punish them for that.
1: And I I do honestly believe that the great majority of DMs who bothered to engage with this page in the first place mm-hmm. and, and like take it on its own terms, I believe they were able to under like add that on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. I, I think I think there's enough groundwork laid to get there. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, I'm I'm pretty much comfortable uh, cruising on through this. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, I don't. I honestly don't really have a lot to say. You know, they this is an edition that had, uh, as I said, the the, the classes uh, um, uh, g- had experience point value tables that were different from each other. So some classes needed fewer experience to gain a level. Um, and some needed more and so you know they have individualized class awards they have uh you know um hit, hit die value modifiers that that allow you to you know to adjust how much experience a creature's worth and you know there, there's just a lot of options here yeah. um and there's a it, it provides ways for you to give individual awards it provides ways for you to sort of mess around with the rate of advancement um, you know, but it's, it's really just a few pages of advice about, Hey, you know, take these things into consideration. There's not a ton of um, you know, in, new things in here, I guess. Um, although at the time I suppose they were new, but by now they're kind of old hat, right? Yep. Um, I do note that it makes training an optional, specifically stated an optional rule. Versus in first edition, it was when you gain a level, you have to go off and train. Um, And so, yeah.
1: And I mean, I would, uh, I mean, I ran one storyline in my campaign where Mm -hmm. the premise of the adventure was that in order to advance um, a particular character needed, this was already the highest level character in the party. They needed Mm -hmm. to go find an NPC who could train them so they could advance. Mm -hmm. Now, in real terms, this was bullshit, and the player knew it. That was like mm-hmm. in the open. There was no right. pretense that I was yeah, yeah. not going sure. to let the character advance. Right. But uh, it, it made for a nice story, mm-hmm. and they had a, a good connection with that NPC. When all was said and done,
0: mm-hmm. I mean, you know this. This actually gets back to that that statement previously about downtime built into the game, right? You know, we're we're talking about uh, this this training idea comes from first edition and then the thing is that in first edition you might be a certain level and you are you do an adventure module, when you complete it now you might have earned enough experience to get you to the next level. Now there's 3 months of downtime in the game that you can go seek out a mentor or do whatever you have to do to to have that training occur. As long as you have enough money, you can make it happen. Um, and it's not going to kill the campaign because, you know, well, y- y- you're playing first edition and you do this module, then you have some downtime, then you do this module, then you have some downtime. And that's a very different structure than, than what it seems like more modern games are, you know, are set up.
1: Yeah, I mean, I should go through uh, some of the published adventures and just see where it does make sense for the players to take mm-hmm. a week or a month or whatever to... Live in the community that they're doing something mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. and really experience that. that right. That's that's a question I hadn't really thought about a lot before talking about, to you about it right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean that just speaks to the fact that Fifth Edition, the current edition that we've all played so much of now, because it's in its what sixth year, seventh year, sixth year, sixth year. But boy, I played a year of playtest. Um, yeah, same. I mean. It, it's, you know, that just speaks to the way that this edition has evolved and how the adventures for it are written. There really aren't downtime spaces and, you know, more and more, they're just moving to the full complete milestone version. So you don't necessarily, you know, I mean, so here, here's the th- Here's what I want to say about that. Moving to milestones actually, if they think about it, makes it easier to build downtime in. Oh, for sure. Because now you say, well, first, everybody levels at the same time. Now you get to the end of part one of the adventure. Now there's two months where these PCs... Can go around town, horse around, establish a home base, learn to learn some of the NPCs, get to know everybody. Before they have to go fight the big demon in part two, they can actually get some training and level up a couple levels or some, you know, whatever. Um, that's easier to build in in a, in a situation where you're using milestone leveling. Yeah, so that's an interesting sort of thought. Uh, I, that's, that that would be interesting. It, <laughs> man can you imagine the podcast we would create if you and I sat and went through all the fifth edition adventures and said, okay, well, here's where you can have downtime.
1: <laughs> I mean, and
0: you can, you know,
1: <laughs> I'm down. Let's, let's maybe pencil <laughs> one in per year.
0: But that, right? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. That's, that's good. Totally.
1: I, I think um, people listen to that just as yeah. a, as a deep dive. Like if you start with tyranny, people who care about tyranny of dragons have probably had their run at it. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 Yeah. And man, I have so much to drag about that campaign. Oh boy. Yeah. Anyway, you know,
0: I I so okay, I was on the Tome show review of it and I had some negative things to say about it and I still have some negative things to say about it. But I know about 3 or 4 people who have played that campaign about 4 times. Wow. And it's different. That is commitment. Each, yeah, they it's different each time and they love it. They just love the campaign. It's just so good for them.
1: So I'm really glad they love it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's awesome to hear that. I'm, I'm, you know um, I'm actually playing in it right now. It's the first time I've played in a actual standard written fifth edition campaign. Dude. Um, and so it's been a long time since I've looked at it. Cause I'm trying to keep myself from remembering, oh yeah, I remember, you know, um, but yeah, so, but I agree with you. I think that those people would be not so it doesn't, they, the time has passed. Right. Um, also, that I'll cut most of this out. But also that that type of topic seems maybe more suited to a blog post because then somebody can go to it and reference it. You know? Oh, sure. Versus listening to a podcast, although it would be a hell of a lot of fun. Anyway, so let's move on to chapter nine.
1: Yep. Combat In which edition wars has a combat? Well, <laughs> has chapter nine combat?
0: We have chapter nine combat. Uh, it's which not a form I,
1: of bankruptcy, is it?
0: No. All right. uh, it is not. Um, I like the fact that the chapter starts out with a, a several paragraph discussion on creating vivid combat scenes, right? Yep. Um, I... Because you know, here's the thing. This is where the two e DMG kind of differentiates, and it's already has done this, but this is specifically in this chapter, it differentiates itself from first edition because in first edition, the DMG, because it was the DM's book, it was a lot of here are rules right? If a player wants to do this, here's how you should rule it. If the player wants to do this, here's how you should rule it. If the player wants to do this, here's how you should rule it. And, oh, here are the combat tables, the matrices, which we didn't bother to put into the PHB, right? Like, here's all this stuff. That's mechanics you have to use if you want to adjudicate the game properly. This chapter in in the DMG for the second edition is advice and you know, here's how you might think about adjudicating this, but here's this other way you could do it. And here's some modifiers, or here's some other different types of ways you might think about this. You know, um, it's much more advice tone than it is here are the rules tone.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess this doesn't quite, have the the words that i need to hear to help me do the thing that i need to do to enrich my campaigns and neither do any other dmgs just laying that out there but what what i need is to figure out the thing i have to say to make the players feel empowered to engage with their descriptions of their uh their swings, their spells, their movements, Mm -hmm. so that they are as much contributors to the descriptive narrative as I am, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, listening to Critical Role, that's a a part of the dynamic, right, of who is delivering the description. Um, So much of how do you want to do this is about Who's delivering the description?
0: That mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. is consciously putting the description in the player's hands, and then he picks it back up, and adds a few more details and recapitulates it. But recapitulating it is about making it an agreed part of the descriptive narrative.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I agree with that, and I, and and yeah, I think that no DMG probably does that very well,
1: um, and, and you know. The, the game largely stops at, you should describe your attacks and mm-hmm. <laughs> add description to the movement. Okay, right. here's the dice roll that you need to make to hit. And I don't know, uh, a lot of it is just like bridging that moment of vulnerability for players saying, you know, I do this, and mm-hmm. maybe getting a little purple in their prose. But right. that needs to be okay for everyone at the table. They need to feel comfortable doing it. And it's tough when you're around your friends and you care how they
0: see you. Right? Well, and, and also, you know, if you're, if you're not used to it, it, it feels like, well, how many, how many different ways can I say I stab this guy with my long sword? Right. Or I, I slash the guy across the chest. Okay. I, I try to cut the orc's leg off. Like. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm purposefully picking very generic, like, right. But there, but truly there's only so many ways you can talk about slashing. Um, and, and some, so I guess here's where I'm going with this. In some cases you don't need to elaborate on it. Look, if you're doing a very quick skirmish, five little goblins compared to your PCs and they're going to basically slice through them, it's not a big deal. You can actually do a very quick narration, right? Mm -hmm. In a very short amount of time. Or you can tell the players, okay, you're obviously going to beat these guys. Describe to me how that happens. Sure. Right? Describe how that worked in five sentences or less. And then you move on, right? Like, you can do that sort of thing. I don't know that any DMG has been really good at explaining. The timing of that, and and the agreement that it takes, and the practice that it takes.
1: I think, I, yeah, I agree with you on that.
0: Like, I mean, hard. look, you know, you're talking about critical role. You know, this isn't their first, you know, rodeo, right? I mean, <laughs> no, indeed, they, yeah, it, the, I it's mean, not their
1: so, first uh, very, very public rodeo,
0: <laughs> right? So, I mean, I, I'm just, you know, uh, I agree with your statement about that particular group and how awesome that is, but it takes years for some people to become comfortable enough in a group to be able to provide that sort of back and forth. We all agree that we're all establishing the narrative and we all agree that we're going to try our best to produce a narrative that we're all happy with. And that sounds really cool too. And by the way, there's another issue here. A lot of people just do not have the vocabulary to be oh, able oh, sure. to do sure. the types of things that we're talking about,
1: I mean, I, I know from my own group, which is the one I can really speak about knowledgeably here. Sure, uh, I mean, uh, almost everyone at the table is a writer, mm-hmm. uh, to mm-hmm. to some degree or other. Um, the majority of them are published writers. Um, okay, so they've all they've all got the ability. There's mm-hmm. just some there's some social dynamic that still kinda of gets in the way. Yeah. Um, and this is not this is not blame. I mm-hmm. like sure I, I'm putting it on me to empower them. Right? And mm-hmm. to, to make them feel as comfortable as possible, to get the social contract as right as possible, that it's all going to be welcome.
0: Right.
1: And um you know, it, it isn't bad that the DMGs have, you know, focused more on uh, getting the mechanics right. It's just, that's why we have DMG2s. <laughs> to get to the, like, w- once right. you've got the, the foundation down, let's, let's let's pick it up and have something more than a foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, th- that's all to the good.
0: Um, yeah. yeah.
1: So... So right, a lot of this chapter is very mechanical stuff, mm-hmm. and that's fine, right? It's, sure. it's a lot of the mechanics of Thaco. Well,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, it's easy okay. to mock now. That's all I'm going to say.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I've never been one of those people that mocked it. So, well, it, yeah.
1: as we discussed in our very first series, mm-hmm. um, it it looked kind. It looks kind of bad now. It was amazing at the time because it was player facing, mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, yeah. But um, getting into how the modifiers work, folks, you, you don't need to recap that. You can go back to literally our first episode.
0: Right. I mean, and, and that's why I say, so this, this chapter opens with the sort of narrative. Let me set the tone. Here's how you can describe things a little bit. And then it comes off with a bunch of different rules options, talks about a lot of things to its, to the chapter's credit. It tries to give examples of certain pieces. Um, Eh, whatever. I mean, it's fine. Uh, It's, it's fine. Has facing rules, discussion and movement. And, you know, it's, it's a, it, it begins with the sort of narrative thing and then it moves on to the, Okay, here's all the different ways you could adjudicate these rules, which is great. It's that's, that's what should be here, yeah. Um, but there's just uh, not much to say about it.
1: <laughs> well, and like, since we're talking about like the kinds of advice that you'd really need, um, like you can, I guess, you can either go sort of eloquent on description, or especially if you're in a face-to-face game, which none of us are, um, you can be the kind of DM who uh, carries the, the scene forward at a sort of breakneck pace. Mm-hmm. And so um, you swing, you hit like is it, you, you get the, the DMs energy filling the room right. and right. It, it feels frenetic because of that. Mm-hmm. I've had that work before us um, in a, a, a Pendragon campaign um the the really fairly dry um you know roll under your sword stat uh wound up becoming something really great just because Mm -hmm. the gm brought so much energy into Mm -hmm. just his delivery of that very simple thing and his description of the the various uh Saxon hearth knights that were wrecking us with battle axes (laughs) all the time. So many Mm -hmm. Saxons. Um,
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not sure there's. uh...
1: But uh, your point about um, the, the descriptions that it offers, Mm -hmm. uh, that was more of the kind of stuff that I poured over again and again Mm -hmm. Um, on my page 54. So, on your page, God only knows, um, <laughs> there's, there's a description of, uh, wrath, Rupert and Del Sonora, uh, uh, entering a combat. Mm-hmm. And there's this script of, uh, Harry and John and DM, um, all like doing mm-hmm. this. Um, and, uh, uh you know, I, I appreciate sort of, that 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 moment of intensity and what this can look like like when you're 12 literally knowing Mm -hmm. what to say to communicate this idea might might be the thing that gets you past Mm -hmm. a scary moment right right
0: Right. Right. well and that's funny that you say that because I was already towards the end of the chapter and I was looking at what it has to say about morale because there's a section about morale
1: well, there's this massive section on individual initiative that just reading it should be an argument for not doing it.
0: Right. <laughs> yes. A, um, I promptly skipped that section. <laughs> I mean,
1: uh, there, there are these, these huge like scripts of their, mm. their dice rolls and everything. And it's just, uh, Oh dear Lord, this drags and yes. most of your pages math. How do you mm. read that? and Not think, Hmm, no, but yeah. that's fine. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's still less burdensome than initiative and in first Head, So there's that, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. but right. Like, uh, there's a lot of just sort of the, the standards to get through, I guess.
0: Right. Yeah. Notes about different types of monster attacks, notes about how to deal with odd combat situations, you know, the, PC wants to do this. And, you know, how do you deal with that and all that? I mean, it's, yep. it's a fine, it's a fine chapter. It's just not, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm way down in the morale section. So whenever you get here, let me know. All
1: right. <laughs> well um, I think pull arms and weapon frontage says a lot about just <laughs> the, the mindset here, mm. right? There's a whole sidebar on pull arms and yeah. weapon frontage.
0: And, uh, and, and some of this, right. Some of this is, we're bringing some of this legacy stuff in here because we know that some first edition players enjoyed that sort of thing.
1: Right. Um, Well, and also because there is still that sense of, yeah, yeah. You might be playing a war epic, right? Right. right, Uh, where you, you might be, you might need to know that it's a bad idea to charge a pike hedge. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right. Yes. It's (laughs) a, a pike hedge of hobgoblins or whatever. Right. I don't care that you're tenth level; they're gonna murder you.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right.
1: And here it's easy to see why. Um. So, so we've is this steps away from you know the idea of a five foot s- uh, square to fight in. Um, mm-hmm. a man using a piercing polearm can use his weapon effectively with just three feet of space side to side. This allows a tightly packed line of pikemen. Well, that's a really strange idea in every edition after this one
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: where you don't subdivide smaller than five feet. That's not a thing, but here you can.
0: Well, but he says three feet on each side. So that's actually a six foot.
1: Uh, right. Well, no three feet side to side.
0: Oh, side right. to side. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, huh? Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah.
1: So in a, in a nine foot block, well, by the way, what's a nine foot block? You've got three spearmen. Right. What? <laughs> like, and if you actually stand up at, at the table and think about it, that makes perfect sense. Sure. But that's not what a five foot fighting space looks like. Right. Um, right. Anyway, um, uh, you get into the punching and wrestling results, uh, you know, attacking without killing. Punching and wrestling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, overbearing. So, look, folks, these rules are not
0: good. Th- they're not. Well, However, they are improved from first edition. Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> they are so much better than first editions. <laughs> Just absolute mess. Yeah. It's absolute unholy mess. <laughs> um, like, I read it for a long time without understanding what on earth table 43 <laughs> punching and wrestling results is really offering uh-huh. uh, because it is pretty weird right. uh, as it takes your you know, your attack roll result mm-hmm. before you think about uh, hitting and missing and it describes that in a way that we just don't do
0: mm-hmm. Right
1: now I'm not saying this isn't an interesting table I am Saying, once you've normalized not doing this, adding this in is real strange right. and the, the ko percentage was just totally lost <laughs> on me. I yeah. had no idea why that was even there
0: uh-huh yeah, I which I find you know this to be a very interesting table i i I don't know how it would. play out at the table in any in any reasonable type of scene like i it's just the the things that are on this table are too you know if you roll an eight and then you roll and then the next time you roll you know a 12 i mean but but uh, yeah i don't i don't know i I, it's just it's yeah (laughs) it's it's very interesting it's very interesting. I-, I could see it being like a fun little mini game if you wanted to play like a fight club kind of right. group. You know, um, that would be kind of interesting to to have them all use, have everybody use this against each other. You know, <laughs> and see what you end up, you know, what you end up getting, and and you know. So I don't know. It's it's. It-
1: so then we have. Uh, touch spells in combat sure it's it's a thing yeah, i don't yeah eh. uh critical hits um why no critical hit tables i've never been the person who thought critical hit tables were necessary um
0: yeah i i mean we get them in 2.5 e right we, we get do. them in combat and tactics uh, in spades we get them
1: i wasn't a fan of them when we covered it last year
0: right i know <laughs> here we are yeah again. right yeah yeah.
1: I guess this is our, our particular like curse for our sins against Christmas, is to talk about <laughs> this every Christmas.
0: Must be, yeah.
1: I mean, Jacob Marley tried to warn you and didn't show up for me. I, I don't get it. <laughs> um, and critical fumbles. Don't do critical fumbles, folks. They're bad for you. Right. Um, uh, parrying. Um, another idea people always want to put in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it never quite... Actually, makes a whole lot of sense. No,
1: well, spending your action to go full defense is—it's
0: mm-hmm.
1: just a, a guaranteed losing strategy.
0: It—it
1: mm-hmm. it might be okay for a single round if you're just really, really screwed, but mostly no. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I do like that we then get into like some of the horrible things monsters can do to the PCs. It's very satisfying to read as a as a GM. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I get to use gaze attacks. So oh, there's some innate abilities. Oh look, a breath weapon.
0: Well, you uh, skipped you skipped firing uh, into melee.
1: Uh, I did. I wouldn't say it was exactly an accident.
0: Well, I, I'm <laughs> just I'm just calling it out as something that often gets questioned. Right? Like that's that's yeah. often a topic of if a if a if a player wants to make an archer type person they're always want to know what happens if you fire into me if
1: yeah and i think it's it's interesting um sort of how well since it was not a significant question in third or fourth Mm -hmm. and it isn't in fifth um it's interesting that the seeds of those questions got
0: planted here right Uh, Uh, I think the questions existed in first edition.
1: No, no, I I, here in, sorry, here is in first and second.
0: Uh, okay.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. just it's explicitly not part of the game rules, but either because of reading, uh, like having played first and second or because they're just imagining it in their heads and it's dangerous Mm -hmm. to shoot an arrow into a a chaotic melee, uh, as any LARPer will tell you. Um, (laughs) Like, th- that's why the, the question still comes up every once in a while in the Facebook groups. Sure. I kind of think.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Grenade like missiles. Indirect fire is um, a real danger to all and sundry, and that's the best kind.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: It's so, what so you call uh, excessively close air support. <laughs> Um, so do we want to skip forward to saving throws that we also covered in a previous episode?
0: Eh, Sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, we already covered it. Uh, Um, it's, it's a pretty uh, standard set of saving throws. If you played first edition, this is not really that different. Um, when you're, when your PC gets up to the highest levels, the saving throws are, um, concomitantly lower. You know, they all start out in the low teens mostly, and they go down to the low single digits for most classes for every single save. Um, I mean, it's, it's pretty standard. It's not, um, you know, it's way different from third edition, of course, and fourth edition. Um, and it's different from fifth edition, but it's closer to fifth edition, I think, than it is to third and fourth. Uh, but it's it's basically just first edition, just changing yeah. the table a little bit. I mean, it's really not, you know, the saving throws are grouped by the type of attack. So, you know, I mean, whatever, it's fine. It's fine. Um, you know, it, it go- goes into saving throw priorities, which. Tells you, you know, oh, if the if the PC could be subject to more than one of these types of things, which which one do you roll first? Oh, you didn't die from that death magic. Now you have to roll against this wand. You know, so yeah. Um, well,
1: and yeah. that's all sort of very dubiously implemented in adventures and spells going forward. Um, then, sure, magic resistance. I mean, everybody loves traits that are incredibly hard for PCs to get, but are fairly easy for NPCs to get. That's a good sure. time.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: yeah, yep. and, and I mean, Magic Resistance, just to throw this out there, was, especially in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd edition, one more like layer of defense to get through before you instantly kill the monster with your horrible spell or whatever. Right?
0: Right, um, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... You know, I mean, and this is this is the uh, the DM taking evasive action to make sure that creatures have a fighting chance,
1: right? So, right. So, so like, if you want to see magic resistance as being proto legendary resistance, I think you've got a to stand on.
0: Yeah, no, uh, that's a fair argument.
1: Like, we still have magic resistance in in fifth, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. just advantage on saving throws against spells, right. sure, but, and magical effects, but. In what it's actually setting out to accomplish, mm-hmm. I think this winds up being a less predictable legendary resistance.
0: Uh, I'll buy that argument. Yeah, I, th- I think that's probably true.
1: Um, yeah. So turning undead. Um, I mean, it hasn't changed. A, it, it doesn't change a lot going into third. I think third mm-hmm. is fairly similar in its format. Um, I remember a lot of sort of faffing around with trying to get the form of turn undead just right in mm. um, D&D next. Um,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: And we have another of those great play examples that uh, <laughs> that I love, and you know, Twitter loves to hate. With, <laughs> uh, the, the priest Goris, uh, not actually taken from your campaign, but you know,
0: could be. <laughs> <laughs> no it's not but
1: <laughs> uh, immunity to weapons is more horrible stuff that pcs will never get access to but will <laughs> really
0: <laughs>
1: hate you for and yeah. um the function of immunity to weapons does change a lot over the years mm-hmm. uh, that's actually it's actually one of the biggest uh 30 to 35 shifts because uh like damage reduction and such was such a huge part of late game monster design. Hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm getting way ahead of myself, but it's a really big thing there. And so like here, we don't have the, the full sort of golf bag of um, different magic weapons, you know, adamantine and cold iron and so on. Right. Uh, it's just, uh, plus X magic to hit and silver to hit.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- this is the sort of thing where I always, I appreciate it because for me, it's a world building tool, right? Like yeah. I, co- I constantly yeah. go back to, to world building because the majority of my role playing career, so to speak is in my own homebrew settings, Right. Yeah. And so since that's the case, you know, I'm I'm I often look at rules and rulings from the perspective of what does this tell me about the world, right? That's also a biologist mindset, right? If you go look yep. at the ecosystem, you look at one creature, what is it telling you about the rest of the creatures or the rest of the world and that sort of thing. So that's kind of where I come at this from. That's my point of view that I come at this. So I like, it's the same reason I like, you know, talking about harvesting the parts of creatures and harvesting, you know, creating recipes for rituals and things like that, because that to me is all very world building savvy. And, you know, it's sort of like, well, if, if the, uh, if the trolls all have regeneration, unless you hit them with fire, um, you know, that's a common trope. Now everybody knows about that one, but back then if you didn't know about it or if you have a creature in your setting that has a resistance or a regeneration style ability that you have to figure out what to hit it with to make it not do that that's a world building exercise that's not a combat exercise right uh at least it's a combination at the very least um and so that's why i like this sort of thing but as you said it too often gets implemented as just a way to you know make it so that the the PCs can't just you know run roughshod over the creature
1: yep and i would love to see a campaign that really like examined more the the reasons that you know you need this degree of magic weapon to mm-hmm. harm this creature like what is it about those degrees that, that matters. And I don't know. Um, I'm into that kind of thing. It doesn't see a lot of, uh, like narrative interest because it is, uh, a binary system of right. you have the thing or you haven't, or in, uh, three 30 Oh and three five, you have the thing, or I guess we can ignore most of the three weapons damage. Maybe not all, mm-hmm. but most <laughs> right, kind of deal. Right. Uh, right. So so yeah, like creatures become inherently magic to hit uh, at various hit dice totals. Well, not inherently magic to hit; they, they, they inherently swing magic damage, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Hits creatures requiring plus X weapon, right? Um, and I do appreciate the the bit of okay. So if you're going to have immune monsters in your campaign, know what you're getting. Mm-hmm. That's that's good. And now I finally caught up to you in morale. <laughs>
0: Uh, Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not that I wanted to explore the morale section all that much. It was just, I was going to say that I appreciate that, you know, they're talking about role-playing solutions, Right. that the first and best way to handle morale is to determine it without rolling dice or consulting tables, just doing what you think the creature would do in a particular case. Um, However, I also understand then that they move on to talk about all these morale ratings and situational modifiers and all that. And the reason they're doing that is because not everybody is Keith Amon writing the monsters know what they're doing, (laughs) right? Like not everybody, especially people who are new DMS can sit there and say, Oh, I know what it means for that creature to have an intelligence of seven. I know sure. how they're going to act. Like that's not that's not something that necessarily comes natural to people. Sure. Um,
1: so I mean, the, the idea that an intelligence of seven means one consistent thing is uh, also incorrect.
0: Sure, absolutely. I, but but there is an idea there that everybody with an intelligence of a certain level has a you know is grouped into a certain set of behaviors and, and activities, right?
1: I, I agree the idea exists. I'll go yes, that. Yes,
0: I'm not saying it's a good idea. I'm just saying that that <laughs> is, right? Yeah. Um, you know, that that's something that enters it's a very simplistic way of looking at those ratings. And so yep. it enters into the to the psyche that way. Yep. Um so I I appreciate this section. I think it probably gets a little bit way too, you know, let me throw a giant table of situational modifiers at you. That's absolutely unnecessary.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I, I've always been a big proponent of the role playing solution.
0: Mm-hmm. But sure. Absolutely. Well, that's why I said, I like that they started yeah. with it. Cause that's to right. me the best way. But
1: I, like in the arguments I've been in since then, I didn't remember that they had this huge description though. Obviously I've read it this <laughs> obnoxious number of times right. sure. and it imprinted on me very strongly. Mm -hmm. with just if you're going to put something on camera that has motion and engages the PCs um, know what it wants know how much it wants it you can kind of stop there
0: I agree Um, and then it talks about injury and death
1: yep I I love the first line under falling Player characters have a marvelous and, to, to the DM, vastly amusing tendency to fall off things, <laughs> generally from great heights and almost okay. always on hard surfaces.
0: Yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs>
1: it's, that's pretty great.
0: Yeah, that is nice. Um, and uh, and it, it specifically calls out paralysis and energy drain. Uh, and it, it spends quite a few words on energy drain.
1: Yeah, no one misses your energy it? drain. No one misses you.
0: Right. And 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 so the reason it spins so much verbiage on energy drain is because you have to talk a lot to make a case for it because it sucks so bad.
1: <laughs> that is accurate, you know?
0: yes. Um yeah, so we can move on from that. We don't need to talk about that anymore. There is a poison table which gave rise to an entire netbook of poisons for second edition that
1: God, I just bet it did. Yeah. So many poisons. Oh, specific injuries. Mm, great.
0: Yeah. I love the first question. Is this injury necessary? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't help reading that in a very sarcastic manner. Oh, Is this injury necessary?
1: It, it's like the old uh, maxim that uh, any headline phrases a question could be answered no.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, And then it gets into healing, natural healing, magical healing, herbalism.
1: Natural healing is real friggin' slow.
0: Yep, yeah, Uh, yeah. It's very old school in its stylistic approach, for sure.
1: Like, It's slightly faster, I think, than in Pendragon, which is saying something.
0: Yeah, so here, I want to say this to you, though. Remember, though, this is also the time when there was built in downtime between adventures. Yep. Yep. So um, it was possible for a person to just be resting for a week. Yeah. And gain back sure. their hit points and not have to have every hit point back after a single long rest. Oh, gain
1: back some of their hit points anyway.
0: Well, it, well, I mean, but just, if you're just a, it doesn't
1: scale by level. That's all.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're in complete bed rest and you know, yeah. So, I mean, it's, yeah. It, it's it's going to take a while if you're high level, for sure. But if you're high enough level, you've got enough money for magical healing. So Yep. Um,
1: you know. And, you know, if you really went deep on troop-style play, uh, this actually pays off a lot better, giving you that sort of um, Darkest Dungeon or XCOM. Uh, no, this character is still injured. You can have them again in a month. Uh, or maybe after they've also purged some sin at the, the church or whatever, right? Whatever their new problem is. Like, that could be a really cool way to get some mileage out of this. Uh, if you didn't have ready access to magical healing, though, by all means, have access to magical healing, please. Right.
0: Yep. Yeah, and then death from poison. So I, I gotta tell you, Uh, the last second edition game that I ran, (laughs) the players were traveling and they camped at night and I rolled for wandering monsters and poisonous snakes came up. So they were beset by a, a small, you know, set of poisonous snakes. I think four of them or something. And they had killed three of them and one of the players had been asleep this whole time. Cause I mean, it was like, you know, one round. Uh, Cause everybody except this one player woke up. And the player, the PC woke up and stood up and tried to swing at the snake and missed. And the snake got a turn and it bit him and it was poisonous. Uh-huh. So I had him roll on the table to see what, you know, how damaging you know what kind of poison it was and he rolled and he rolled a nat 20 and they were all like yes you know because he thought it was going to be great and that was death in six
1: (laughs) rounds wow that's great
0: and the pc died for a freaking wandering monster
1: wandering coral snake whoops my bad (laughs)
0: um so you know in that group it was fine i mean that's how we played they didn't sure. like you know i i would really balk at that that would not happen for example in a fifth edition game right oh no, oh, no. I, that that's just not how i would run it uh the the sort of ethos of play is very different now but back then it was just like oh man and then he just made a new character and it was fine yep. um but it was it was it was kind of a funny moment cuz they all cheered you know when he got the 20 and then it was like oh uh, yeah this is the case where you don't want the 20 <laughs>
1: um, yeah
0: but yeah, so 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 death from poison has a significance in my in my running uh, in my running in gaming history for yep. second edition that is it, it never turned out good when there was something poisonous, it, <laughs> there was always a problem if it was a creature now if it was a, a trap or something that was not a problem, but a creature that was oh God, yeah, bad stuff.
1: so so death from poison, like this section sort of, is amusing to me because um, the the requirement that you neutralize the poison before restoring the character to life
0: <laughs> right
1: is a it's an odd idea, right? <laughs> right. There aren't really any other causes right. of death in mm-hmm. the game that we make you fix
0: right. Because
1: they'll kill you again <laughs> if you haven't fixed it by the time you get right. brought back to death. Yeah. Up to and including your head being off.
0: hmm Right.
1: But this is the one that also made its way into the Georgia LARPing community. Mm. Like, yeah, if mm. you have a um, a death poison in your system, like you better get that shit purified, or yeah. you got a problem, friend. <laughs> you will you will die again immediately upon getting back. Like.
0: What? Why? <laughs> that is so. It's so funny. It's
1: super specific, and it really, really tells you that the game was written in the nineties when this was the current edition of D anD. d right. And that was like what was what was like instinctive for the creators. I don't know if they got it because of this. I haven't asked them. Like, mm-hmm. I, I could. I could call them up right now and say, "Hey, why don't you put that in?" And. <laughs> Maybe it's this, maybe it's not, but it really seems like it might be.
0: Yeah. You know, I have a sense that, I mean, I don't know about the LARP thing, but I have a sense that because poisons are a real life thing, there was this urge to have a lot of realism in it and some verisimilitude in it that doesn't exist because we're playing in a fantasy world. But But because poison is real in real life and there's lots of different types of venoms and, and you know what I'm saying? Like, it's almost like that sort of real worldism leaked in to the game and made it like this poison is a protein that won't break down for two to six hours. So don't get resurrected until you're sure that it's gone. Like,
1: no, you're (laughs) right. You're right. It's just weird.
0: Yeah. Very, very odd. Very odd. Okay, so, after death from poison, death from massive damage.
1: Yep. I Now, it, I will say that in 2nd edition, it's pretty hard to get to 50 points of damage in a single attack. Mm-hmm. Unlike in 3rd, where it's not. It's quite easy, actually. Uh, yeah. But uh, it, it's real bad for you. in mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> In 2nd. I mean... If doing fifty points of damage wasn't bad enough for you,
0: right, right. I mean, you know, well, this this idea also carried carried forth into fifth edition, right? I mean, there is there is the massive damage, you know, uh, immediate death rule, yep. right?
1: Um, an inescapable death. I mean, <laughs> I, I was pretty sure that all of the examples you could think of for this have been used on, um, Mr. Bond at some point. And he was, <laughs> he's fine because you only uh, died twice.
0: Right. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean,
1: <laughs> it's fine. Like, I, I, I do appreciate things like, um, look, y- you fell 300 feet into lava. There's not a role that's going to save you here. Just no.
0: Uh, okay. Anakin, but, um, he didn't fall three hundred feet of lava. He was
1: left. It- it's not better, is it? It's, 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 I'm not <laughs> no, helping. It's not <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because he didn't have the high ground. If he had the high ground, yeah, that right. wouldn't have helped. Never mind. I'm gonna, I'm gonna let this one go.
0: <laughs> but you get my idea. I mean, yeah, oh, this is it's, it, it, in some in some respects there is, you know, uh, there are some things that definitely are inescapable. You are not going to come back from that. So whatever, that's fine. Raising dead.
1: Yeah, it's fine.
0: Like,
1: yeah. There's not a lot for us to say about this uh, aside from the fact that there is con loss um, in this one. Um, and, permanent con loss. Right, and I don't know if permanent con loss is better than, worse than, or fairly equal to um, level loss in, in the long run. I will just say that with the rules around increasing ability scores with wishes that we covered in the previous episode, (laughs) Uh, just kind of cruising at 14 con and only spending a wish when you need to regain one because you can regain them one per one point per wish at that level seems actually really a good way to live forever. If you have that steady of access,
0: yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm just wondering how you got access to those 160 wish spells.
1: I couldn't begin to tell you. Yeah, me
0: neither.
1: <laughs> um, anyway, uh, we have a hovering on death door rule, which yep, yep. is the the precursor to, you know, you don't die at zero hit points. Right. That has become standard. It was, yep. it was used in every um, second aid game I played in. Because we didn't like losing characters even then. Right. And then it becomes the, the law of the land from henceforth in third mm-hmm. and, and later. Uh, and I wouldn't expect that to change ever.
0: The, um, the fact that it became the rule – in third edition bleeds into my second edition memory and me and several other people i know and we just think of this rule in second edition as that's not an optional rule that's just how it was oh yeah well it was negative 10 and then you're dead you don't I, die it, as
1: no I, I agree it was the common table culture right yeah yeah um i didn't pc a whole lot of second i was very much in the forever dm mm-hmm. mode For sure. in second but uh like the few other gaming groups I was in any contact with, yeah, they're absolutely using this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, mm-hmm. Then we get into unusual combat situations. Um,
0: yep. Hey, look, mounted combat.
1: Ma- mounted combat. Uh, I could ho- totally do my whole bit on uh, the Parthians <laughs> again, but instead, <laughs> as I've been saying a lot this episode, go back to last year's uh, 12 days and listen well- out there.
0: But didn't we just talk about this a couple of episodes ago about how it talks about the quality of horses in our equipment section Uh, Uh, and how you, you poo pooed that and guffawed and said how ridiculous that was. But Hey, look at all this mounted combat information here.
1: Look at All this mounted combat that players weren't actually doing.
0: (laughs) That's true, but that's beside the point.
1: (laughs) That's right. It is beside the point. Um, But, uh, you know, one of the things that I take from the enormous amount of energy put on mounted combat here, because it's basically a page of text is that, uh, this kind of really hooks into the frequent references to, um, Byzantium and sort of, uh, the, the Byzantine way of waging war that mm-hmm. runs all throughout this book. And, um, I think that's not a coincidence. Uh, I I think that the only conclusion I can really come to is that uh, Zeb Cook or somebody thought uh, Byzantine cataphracts were uh, freaking sweet Mm -hmm. and uh, (laughs) wanted to give you a chance to play one, even if that is not otherwise supported in the player options. Right.
0: (laughs) I could agree with that assessment, yeah.
1: And then there's an even larger, a, a quite substantially larger section on aerial combat
0: Well, Uh, hold hold on, hold on. I want to, I want to pause for a second and call your attention to table 52. Oh yeah. Um, structural saving throws, which is, it's a fine table. It's related to the siege damage section. Um, but I just want to bring your attention to the second item on the list, which is giant fist. Now, <laughs> yeah. when I when I first read that, I didn't read it as the fist of a giant that is laying siege to a castle. I read it as giant fist coming down from God <laughs> and, like, <laughs> punching the hell out of your castle. Um, and then I realized, oh, no, it means a giant's fist. Okay, got it. <laughs> nice.
1: Yep. Yep. Um, I mean, that's a surprisingly clear precursor to um, Siege Monster.
0: Yep, mm-hmm.
1: that's mm-hmm. awesome. Actually, I hadn't yeah. yeah. like looked back at this to realize that this is kind of planting the seeds of the siege monster trait in fifth ed. But yeah, that's great. Yeah. I love that. Um, but yeah, there's there's a ton of detail about uh, mounted combat here, and mm-hmm. um, in all fairness, uh, the majority of it is fairly good, necessary stuff. Um, some of the, the plus one modifiers to attack and such, uh, you don't have to have that. But the stuff about being dismounted um, and knocking someone off a horse, that's that's all good, useful stuff. Mm-hmm. And then the, the bit about um, mounted missile fire is part of the closing argument in my – I guess someone really liked Byzantine history uh, <laughs>
0: thesis. Right. Um, <laughs>
1: Because it's uh, sort of just touching on the whole style of um, Turkic peoples who came over the steppes and fought with the Byzantines, and also um, a, a lot of their wars with um, the, the Arabs in Anatolia. Uh, thanks, Robin Pearson. I listened to your show.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I mean – it's fair, you know. I, it's it is interesting. Yeah. Um. I've never really used it much in game, so I can't really. <laughs>
1: Neither you nor anyone else, my friend. Yeah.
0: Right. Right. Um. And then there's the aerial combat uh section, which is all optional. Which which in my copy has a a gray background. So there's like two pages, two entire pages. Yep. Two and a half, actually, with a with a gray background.
1: Well, um, so I have. Aerial Combat Tournament Rule, and Aerial Mm -hmm. Combat Optional Rules. I have no idea what Tournament Rule means.
0: Yeah, uh, yes, yes. (laughs) Um, I I I don't know why
1: it's called that. And uh, it says, the Tournament Rules can be used in any situation, but rely on the descriptions of the DM and the imaginations of the players for much of their effect. So this is... So I guess tournament here actually means something closer to um, theater of the mind.
0: Yes, it must because then uh, the optional rules provide more precision about just what is happening in an aerial battle. They require the use of miniatures or counters and generally take longer to resolve. Yeah, so this is this is tabletop, and and tournament rule is uh, theater of the mind and how to maybe structure that.
1: Now, this is also one of the extremely few places in all of Second Ed where um, we use uh, inches for something other than inches. Mm -hmm. Because uh, thus a creature able to fly 12 inches could move 24 inches by diving for its entire movement. Well, what?
0: (laughs) Where is that sentence? Because up in the movement, it says one inch equals 10 feet.
1: So I have that. uh, Yeah, it it absolutely does mean one inch equals 10 feet. It's just, I think this is one of the only places in the whole edition where that notation appears.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so a creature able to fly 12 inches would actually be moving 120 feet. Okay. It's not Yeah.
1: right. They don't fail to explain it. It's just, it's weird.
0: Eh, I mean, eh. I never used it, so, <laughs> well, <laughs> you know.
1: Here again, I'll say, uh, neither you nor anyone else.
0: <laughs> right.
1: I, I, I expect this was not heavily drawn upon. Mm-hmm. I expect that the great majority of tables, if they ever had aerial combat, decided that the tournament rule was bloody. Right. Um, and, and, you know... In as much as I have a problem with these, it's that none of these rules uh, do an even sort of D and D level fidelity, good job of capturing um, like fighting from the back of a griffin in a movie.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'd like to see that be something a little different, but um, I don't. I don't know what it actually looks like in real implementation.
0: Yeah, maybe too complex. That's the problem.
1: Well, for sure, I, good dogfighting rules are hard. Yeah, dogfighting is an aerial combat, not. Yeah, not no, much, I, I knew,
0: <laughs> I knew what you were talking about. Come on. <laughs> yeah, um, it'd be interesting to look to see if there's any uh, World War One or World War Two based games that have a nice aerial combat dogfighting. Yeah,
1: it's, it's called Night Witches.
0: Yeah, but yeah, yeah but that's a very different type of rule set.
1: Oh yes all right so next up is underwater combat yeah. um, and
0: and it spins a lot of words on vision and how well you see in underwater
1: um, yeah I think you if you haven't looked at it lately yourself uh, that's a major emphasis of the fifth ed rules on. Mm-hmm. Uh, underwater combat and exploration. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's, you know, breathing. Well, obvious problem. Sure. Um,
0: <laughs> Unless you have gills, then it's no problem at all. I don't know what the deal is.
1: Right. Well, I'm, I'm speaking as the person who's working on under the seas of Adaria right now. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, yeah.
0: That's,
1: that's a, that's a thing. Um, <laughs> but, but right. Like um, the, the, looking at the combat rules here, um, only thrust weapons can be used effectively underwater. Well, uh, except for those possessing magical items, enable free action. Well, that's surprisingly close to, um, how in, in ed, if you don't have uh, a swimming speed, you mm-hmm. know, marking you as an aquatic creature, you have to use a piercing weapon, uh, underwater. Uh, and then um, nets and missile weapons, uh, nets and crossbows—the only things that really work underwater. Range is reduced. That's surprisingly similar. Um, just uh, this book still labors under the idea that nets could be a good way to use your turn in combat, and fifth uh, <laughs> edition uh, makes it much clearer that that will never be a good idea.
0: Right. But they still offer it on the equipment table.
1: Oh, they offer it. Yeah. <laughs> and then you read the entry and realize there is no circumstance in which this is an okay idea. Yeah. Oh. All right.
0: You say that, but I have a player who bought four nets. Uh huh. And I said to him, what are you going to do with those nets? <laughs> <laughs> well... Like, uh, and he's not sure, but he could carry four of them, so he bought them.
1: It worked in Shira. <laughs> I, there's nothing wrong with Netasa in that show, so whatever. <laughs> I guess it's fine. Ish.
0: Anyway, moving along. Uh, chapter 10, treasure and magic items. Yep. And the very first comment, question on this is... Who needs money?
1: Uh, that's the... I, I think that all the players are in second ed are going to be very keenly aware. The answer is us, please.
0: Yes, everyone. Uh, Thank you.
1: Since since, <laughs> since one really nice thing is that the uh, player's handbook does show them what they're going to need money for in their mm-hmm. class features. Right. And that's just rude. And I love it. <laughs> yeah you want to build a stronghold all right sucker <laughs> just, yeah. just go ahead and sign on the dot of the line mm-hmm. the vig is on <laughs> um just yeah money um
0: yes and what if the characters find a sheaf of cracked papers in an ancient hoard, and one of the papers turns out to be a long lost land deed
1: that's cool. Valuable? I love that.
0: Characters use it to enforce a claim? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Now my whole game is focused around that. Mwah. I mean,
1: if you can get your D&D game to be all about uh, real estate uh, conflicts, I think that's fine. <laughs> there are definitely groups that I know of in real life who would be so about that and would abuse it to their heart's content.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I had a, I had a group, actually the same one who's one of the PCs died from that snake bite. They loved political machinations and they loved having a headquarters and they loved being respected and trying to fight out the noble houses. And, you know, I mean, just, Oh, they loved it. They couldn't wait to get to the point where they were doing that.
1: (laughs) Good times.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. It was fun. Um, So then placement of treasure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I I like the, um, the three premises of treasure Mm -hmm. um, because it does really like uh, foretell the, the whole points of light Mm -hmm. thing of of fourth ed. Like that's a, it's a very clear signaling of everything that's Mm going to go into points of light just in treasure. And that's really cool.
0: Well and once again it's hitting on that world building aspect that I so love. Yep. Right. That's a complete world building. I mean, look at premise two. Once the world was more culturally advanced, since only an organized society can control things like minting on a large scale. Yep. You can't yep. mint coins without organization. Yep. Even well, if they're and- hand minted, even if you're using a small hammer and you know, hammering the seal of the king into them. Right. You're still organized because you're cutting those to the same approximate size.
1: Right. And you have to regulate purity. Right. Right. J- just ask Diocletian. <laughs> um, uh, and I really like that there are some paragraphs of you know, how all of this can factor into your settings history. Mm-hmm. Uh, is another of those kinds of things that like they don't specifically intend you to use any of them. They're mm-hmm. just tossing out a bunch of, uh, names that are freighted with meaning right. that you sort of invent for yourself, but there's going to be a common understanding of roughly what that means. Mm-hmm. And so you're off to the races.
0: Right. Right. Uh, then it talks about, you know, who might have the treasure. So the intelligent versus unintelligent creatures, do you plan the encounter? Do you have a random encounter? And then it talks about balance in your treasure tables and the danger of a Monty Hall campaign. Um so, you know, uh, I, I like I, I like that it's more advice-centric about, you know, think about what treasure is going to do your campaign. Think about what having a lot of treasure is gonna do, think about what that's going to do to the pcs and the npcs around them yep um you know then it talks about magic items
1: well and there's also some some just great bits of um thinking about npcs who are powerful and have a lot of money mm-hmm. uh, just the, the the section on intelligent creatures with money is mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. It's actually quite nice uh, yeah. for just helping you think about how to present stuff, right. uh, especially if this is your first time seeing any of these ideas. Um, yeah, there's advice on how to fix a Monty Hall campaign. Um,
0: and and just to be clear, when it's talking about intelligent creatures, it's not just, oh, here's the human you know, wizard who's intelligent. And it's talking about, for example, it gives the example of a hobgoblin chieftain. It says intelligent monsters will take precautions to guard their treasure that would never dawn on unintelligent beasts. The hobgoblin chieftain isn't going to leave his treasury unguarded. Also, he isn't going to trust his guards. So he's likely to have the treasury rigged with at least one and probably several dangerous traps. Right. Like, yep. uh, you know the I, I'm not sure that people would consider a hobgoblin intelligent or unintelligent. the in this case, it means intelligence is above instinctual bestial intelligence, right? above animal intelligence. Right. It doesn't have to be a, an intelligence eighteen wizard using you know magic using hobgoblin. It can just be a creature that understands that those things have value for sure, for sure. Um, anyway, so where were you going? Planned and random encounters.
1: Uh, well, I was looking at money Hall campaigns and magical oh, items,
0: uh-huh. um, mm-hmm.
1: and um, there's just a lot of advice here on uh, like having creatures use the magic items that they have with them, so mm-hmm. that they don't just leave that magic sword stashed and unused without right. some kind of good reason. Yeah. Um, you know, discussing rarity. Um, like there's uh, th- there's a bit that always sort of interested me. Um, the charm of discovering a magic item is lost if everyone has one. But too few magical items can also ruin a game. This is especially yeah. true at higher levels where magic is so important to character survival. You don't want to kill half the party just so the survivors can be excited at discovering a sword plus one. <laughs> and yeah. uh, obviously, that's true for D and D. Yeah. And it just amuses me because. I have been in non-D&D games, uh, both LARP and tabletop, where a a a sword of literally any magical uh, gift at all, just even the absolute barest magical
0: uh, Mm -hmm. power, Mm -hmm.
1: was something that the PCs were going to like fight and die for, for a season of the game, just right, right. so much suffering. And now they've got one because the campaign to be built around. Well, if you don't have a plus one weapon, you're not mm-hmm. fighting that thing. And so now they can mm-hmm. fight the mm-hmm. thing that's been tormenting them right. for ages. Right. 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 And uh, like, that that's, that would apply in D and D if you tried it that way
0: right and and the thing is like that's also a world building thing right like like having extremely rare magical items that exactly that's and and it actually calls that out it says if magic is common the normal people will begin to build inventions around it there might be a gin powered steam engine a crystal ball telecommunication network or other very unmedieval results this can be entertaining but it does drastically change the shape of the campaign world like that's That speaks to me, right?
1: Uh, It it spoke to Keith Baker, too.
0: (laughs) Yes, it did. (laughs) Yes, it did. Um, Anyway, and then a good section on researching magical items.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So this is a section that I I feel several different ways about at once, just because you can get Really lost in. I actually go on three different quests to get the thing I need to make this magic item. When we could have all had more fun just going in a quest for the magic item. Um, so, which is just why crafting systems are hard in tabletop. Like, the player can't have lonely fun. That's not. That's not how the dynamic of tabletop conversation and play works. If it were, then different different story. Um, but researching magic items, the nature of um, creating magic items, we have talked about this before. I mm-hmm. do still like it as a thing, um, but uh, in a lot of ways, it's just uh, kind of it. It winds up being a player-initiated quest that is is the same as the other flow of play, but yeah.
0: It, it it has the same. I mean, it has the issue that you just mentioned. That uh, if you don't watch it, you end up just turning it into a series of fetch quests, and that's not fun at a certain level, right? Like that's yep. that on a certain level. I mean, I don't mean at certain level of PCs. It, it's just not fun anymore. But as I mentioned when we talked about this last time, this is also purely for me a world building thing, right? Um, sometimes, right. See, see, I think this should be approached like magical research is, is approached, right? Like I want to create a spell that does X, Y, and Z, right. Uh Creating a magical item should also work that same way. Sure. Right. I want to create a sword that also lets me, what's their dumb example spider climb or something right like so what do i need to do to make an enchantment to be able to enchant that sword to make it have that magical property right that can be a single quest it doesn't have to be let's go find these five different components using five different missions to get that just to make a plus one sort of climbing or whatever right um
1: a sword of a, climbing. <laughs> i'm just saying
0: like you know you just need like you need uh you know some kind of idea of balance in there where it can be a world building thing of interest it can be a thing of interest to a couple of the players and it has to also be fun for everybody else in the party too
1: yeah for sure um and i mean uh the kind of work that we did around um how you make magic items is a huge part of world building when we were writing the LARP was that was really, really intense. And we just, I've never spent that kind of energy on uh, doing the same in a tabletop game. Uh, Just because magic items were so much more an assumed part of play. Uh, Yeah,
0: that's understandable.
1: And I do sort of like that scrolls and potions are relatively much easier to to create. They need to be. It's consumables, man. Like let's 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 sort of.
0: Yeah. Once you reach a certain level where you could create those pretty easily, they should be very basic. Like it needs to be basic.
1: Well, like if they're going to be common in the world as treasure this should probably be something that your casters can make. that's just kind of, it does stand to reason pretty well. Um,
0: I mean, didn't you see Harry Potter? They all went to potions class.
1: Um, yep. <laughs> I mean, what, what I know is that every wizard gets scribed scroll at first level, but not everyone really bothers with brew potion at third. <laughs> that's that's That's, three that's far true. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Anyway. Anyway. Um, um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny cause we talked so much about like creating magic items uh, in the, it, it's funny how much so many of our episodes were very specifically caught up by the second edition uh, yeah. set of rules.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that this book gets overlooked by a lot of people. In mm-hmm. talking about kind of the, uh, the the history and development of the game, because for a lot of the people that I talk to, much as for you, the first Ed DMG was the more mysterious, mm-hmm. the more foundational. Um, like it has sort of more more nooks and crannies uh, because you can just open to any random page and. Right. Lord knows what you might find. <laughs> right. Right. Um, whereas this, like, it's a much slimmer volume, um, and it, I think it's easy to overlook all this stuff here, but there's really a lot of good material here for, mm-hmm. for for just like basic usage. In part because a lot of the stuff that used to be entirely reserved to the DM has now been pushed over to the player's handbook.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, right. Leaving room here in the DMG for exploring different things.
1: Uh, and also, you know, they didn't need to include uh, some of the kinds of really specific NPC world-building stuff. Like, the section on sages in this book is not as long. The section on assassins is not as long kind of thing. And so that's why I can get away with being a much slimmer volume. Um, I think overall the magic section, magic item section is much shorter, but I haven't checked the page count, so don't hold me to that.
0: Um, so the last section here is on artifacts and relics. Yeah. And it's another yeah. optional section that has like three pages of optional explanation
1: yeah tagging this as optional is kind of an odd statement yeah you know, for D, mm-hmm. because sh- sure they might not show up but anything might not show up right and the idea of D, where there is nothing that could ever be called an artifact is mm-hmm. a little oh i guess you felt like tying your hands that's a little weird yeah
0: <laughs> Yeah. So the, the interesting thing though, is then it gives rules for designing an artifact or relic, which I appreciate. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah.
1: Well, right. And, and we sort of go through a couple of different sample artifacts and relics mm-hmm. and the things that show up here are very, very classic in D and D, um, of seven I, parts. I, I think most of them come from first ed, uh, mm-hmm. Rod Of seven parts hand of okay. Vecna. Uh, Heard's mystical organ may not show up in that many editions, but yeah. I love that. They give us the story of the Rod of seven parts. Um, like this is where I first learned about, uh, misca, the wolf spider. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. I, but this was my only contact with even that name right. for a decade. Maybe okay. more, mm-hmm. um, and then it, it's sort of shocking how long the section on keywords mystical organ is. And uh, <laughs> are we not doing phrasing anymore? It's f- phrasing, people. Keywords yeah, mystical I organ. Mean, Come on. Yeah,
0: I um,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. I what's interesting about this to me is that if you look at the very beginning of the designing an artifact or relic section, it reads very much, or at least it's, it's structured very much like almost like fifth edition where it talks about appearance, history, alignment, what kind of powers it has. Are they major or minor? What are the dangers and weaknesses of it? Does it have any corrupting effect? Like I think in the fifth edition DMG, the creating an intelligent artifact section is very, very similar. Mm,
1: yeah, 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 and I think that they they did that uh, with with tons of intent.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, sure,
1: they, they certainly had the fourth edition concordance Artifacts mm-hmm. system right. to yep. to look to if they'd wanted, and mm-hmm. they did. Um, it was something much more in line with second edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know everything about designing artifacts and relics and destroying artifacts and relics is, I mean, peak world building.
0: Right, Yeah. Uh, but mm-hmm.
1: if you're, if artifacts aren't a cornerstone of your world building, don't put them in your game. Right. They have no business being in your game if they aren't a cornerstone of world building. I don't know how else to put that.
0: Right. Right?
1: Yeah. Like, you are saying enormous things about your game if the hand of Vecna shows up.
0: Right, right. Well, I mean, there's like five artifacts in my D&D brief game. <laughs> and they're all they're all like super powerful and the players don't even realize how powerful they are.
1: Oh good. Oh good.
0: Um I mean, they know they know the sort of mundane powerful uses of them, but they're uh-huh. only just now learning, "Oh, this actually yeah, there's a reason we got this. This is like destiny or something that we got this because of the quest we're on. This is, this, this could be bad. Yeah. You know, um, because the thing's a freaking relic. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but anyway, so that, that actually brings us to the, does your version have the wonderful homage to the um cover of the first edition DMG in it? No, like the, two, the two thieves prying the jewel out of the giant statue of Moloch. No, uh,
1: the art I have here is um, a, a warrior with a very elaborate getup, uh, a, a skull for a part of his helmet, um, with sword drawn and a shield at his side, and a golden uh, golden gorgon breathing fire and murdering the townsfolk. Uh, like yeah. that, that's that's the center of the whole picture, and there's like all kinds of other action going on, and because of the other action going on, I'm really not clear <laughs> who the good guys are or what yeah. what's happening here. I think I think he's got to be the bad guy, and then the, the person who's getting freed from the chains has to be like, his you know intended victim, but. Eh. There's a lot of different possible stories you can construct with this picture.
0: Uh, so that that brings us to chapter eleven, but I think we're gonna end here, dear listeners. We hope that you have enjoyed our discussion. I am Sam Dillon, and you can find me on Twitter at DM Samuel and on the web at rpgmusings.com. And Mr. Stoddard, where can we find you?
1: I'm on Twitter at Brenda Stoddard. I'm on uh, my, my my personal blog is com. I'm Brenda Stoddard on Patreon, and I also write for Tribality.com.
0: Excellent. Very excellent. And so, with that, we should say goodbye. Do you have any closing thoughts?
1: Yeah, wear your masks, man. The infection rates are out of
0: control. They are. Protect yourself and all of your friends, family, and neighbors. Even people who you don't agree with.